Good morning. Last few hours of 2023. This might be one of those few years in our lives where normally we're excited for a fresh new start. Tomorrow is 2024, new year, new me. Might be one of those years. Can 2023 last a little longer? Because I'm not sure if I'm looking forward to 2024. But there's a couple of things that are exciting about 2024. One, it's a, it's a leap year, by the way, so we get an extra day in February, fun fact. We have a solar eclipse coming. You thought the one that was cool, you know, last time was cool. We have a bigger, badder one coming in April. We also have the Paris Olympics, the Summer Olympics. Personally, my favorite, I love the Winter Olympics, but the Summer Olympics has just a little bit more zazz to it, and so I'm excited to see what happens. But as we know, 2024 brings in not only a uh, House of Representative election, a senatorial election, but of course the general presidential election of 2024. And we thought 2020 was crazy. Well, we had, God says, uh, we'll try this one out. Here's the interesting fact, actually, is that we're not the only country that's having a general election or a election. 49% of the human population is having an election this year. 64 different countries, including our own, is having an election. And with our current culture of hostility on both sides, a greater sense of resentment, we're kind of wondering, is this the one that's going to break the camel's back? seems a little bit trepidatious to some of us. If you really think, especially what some states are doing to this coming election. But how we approach 2024 and the trepidatious events like the wars in Israel, in Ukraine, to the wars to maybe to come, to the election, how we approach those things and the things personally in our lives is determined how we view the eternal realities to come. So as Chris read Revelation 21, let's please all turn there in our Bibles together to Revelation 21, the end in mind. Now as you're turning there, there's some context you need to know. Right now in the the United States, we do enjoy, and particularly here in Texas, we enjoy a sense of religious freedom, religious tolerance, or even, especially again here in Texas, a religious positivity toward biblical Christianity. That was not so when John wrote this book. It was not so when he had this vision from Christ. In John's context, the Christian church was small. The Christian church was being persecuted. It was driven out from Jerusalem that those who hated them all over the Roman Empire and maybe beyond its borders. By the time Nero was emperor, took Christians and threw them in the Colosseum for entertainment, to be hunted in public view as lions tore apart their flesh, men, women, and children, even taking Christians and burning them alive on the streets of Rome at night to make the candles of Rome bright for the screaming bodies of Christians. John, even though he was on an island, he is on exile, away from everyone he loved, by himself. And in the midst 
of his great trial and tribulation, God gives him a vision of what is to come. Not just him, but he was told to write it down for you and I, people he did not know, 2,000 years later in a continent he didn't know about, say, hey, this is what's really going to happen. And with that in mind, knowing what's going to happen as we read the words together as a church, we need to, as our main point that can be put on the screen, ensure that you are joyously preparing to dwell with God in His perfect, eternal kingdom. That's the main thing we need to walk away with, is that we need to make sure as 2024 is coming, as the news begins to churn that machine a little more, as we get headline after headline after headline about what's going to happen, who's going to win, who's going to be our next leader or leaders of this country, or the things that you're facing in your marriage, in your family, in your work, we need to ensure that we are joyously preparing ultimately to dwell with God. So as this year ends, let's have a biblical mindset that reminds us that even though this year is closing and that we have new insurance policies starting and new taxes and our calendar now changes to January 1st, let us remember that we are one day closer, one week closer, one month closer, one year closer to the realities that we just read about. So with that, let us read together again what God wanted John to write down. So following the destruction of Satan, death, and Satan's fallen angels and his followers into the lake of fire, we get verse 1, chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So what we see here is a new universe. Something that is going to be unrecognizable, alien, not like what you think of UFOs, no, just so different that it's going to be completely foreign to what we experience now. Even though there might be similarities as we live in this earth, there's going to be a new earth. This is nothing new to John. This isn't the first time that we believers read this in the Bible. You can jot down Isaiah chapter 65 and 66. We are going to become good friends with this man named Isaiah because you're going to see how God connects all of Scripture together into one beautiful, powerful story of reality to come. Isaiah 65 and 66. Isaiah 65, God tells Isaiah, For behold, I create a new heavens and new earth, and all the former things shall be not remembered or come into mind. And so when the believer enters the new heavens and new earth, the former things are not going to be remembered because the glorious presence of what we're going to be experiencing is going to drive out that out from our memory. Isaiah 66, 2, For as the new heavens and the new earth the I make shall remain before me, says the Lord. Again, this concept is not new, but also continues through the Bible. 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter, writing to the exiles, a.k.a. the church, says this in chapter 3 of a second letter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 to 13. 11 to 13. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, talking about the present world, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord, 
because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, as we see in the Revelation, as the moon and sun and the stars are destroyed. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so it's something that we get to look forward to as believers. But something interesting is we see the, the tagline of verse 1, almost a passing comment as we comment as we see how the first earth and first heaven will pass away. Part of that is the sea will be no more. Now, as a young man who grew up near the ocean and loves the ocean dearly, I don't particularly like this part of the Bible because I'm like, what about my, my surfing and my beachfront property? God says no more sea. The thing is, we only like the nice parts of the sea, about a few yards out from the coast to the ocean. Outside of that, we actually don't like the sea unless you're a sailor, but even if you are a sailor, the sea is still what? Trepidatious. Obviously, it's filled with sharks and monsters of the deep, of mythology. But even if you look at videos recently of cruise ships or cargo ships in the middle of the ocean, these waves just tower over them, many stories high, just rocking these boats. The biblical understanding of the sea is that it's something that needs to be tamed, has dominion over. We see that in Genesis chapter 1. The Spirit of God was what? Hovering over the face of the waters. God may have created the sea, but created it good. And so he showed dominion over this thing called chaos. And the sea, even today, even though those who love the ocean the most, understands, yes, I have to prepare for chaos that I don't even can't really see coming. Not only just chaos, but evil comes from the ocean. I mean, not just in the sense of like all sharks or sea turtles are evil. No, we're talking about like in Daniel 7. The four beasts came out of where? The sea. Revelation chapter 13. I saw a great beast rising out of where? The sea. And so what God is saying is that the, the source and the home of chaos, evil, and sin is going to be no more. Not only is this going to be a, a very different creation where we will experience an earth with no ocean, which is about two-thirds or three-fourths of our surface right now. There's no longer be something, anything separating us from one another. And there's no more a place for evil to rise out of. No home for chaos. That is the new universe to come, but there's also a new capital, verse 2. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And we see this language through biblical passages on marriage in Ephesians 5. Husbands are supposed to love their wives as Christ loved the church. The wife is supposed to submit to her husband as a bride, as the church submits to Christ. But also, it's a comparison in the book of Revelation. It's a comparison to the unfaithful capital of the world named Babylon. Home of the fleshly desires. Home of countless sexual immorality and, and murderous. But also, there's a need of a new Jerusalem. God isn't going to take Jerusalem now, today, in Israel, and just polish it up. No, he's going to bring down a new Jerusalem where the believers now dwell. Those believers now who are in the presence of God dwell now, and he's going to bring that down to earth. This is a need of a new Jerusalem. Our friend Isaiah says so. Chapter 1, verse 21. How the faithful city, Jerusalem, has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. God's saying, I'm going to take everything here 
I'm going to start over. Now, as you study the book of Revelation, you see it's actually God uncreating the world, the different bowls of wrath, the scrolls, all of it is taking the six days creation, the creation, and he you now is uncreating it to give something new, something new, so holy, so set apart. It's going to be perfect. So perfect. So perfect that this fact can happen in verse 3. Verse 3 of chapter 21. Let's read it together. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Those words need to hit us like a freight train. Because right there, finally, ever since Genesis chapter 3, God's cosmic plan has finally come to completion. Because God did dwell with man. We see that in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. He walked in the garden with man and woman, Adam and Eve. But Adam and Eve sinned. And God had to separate them out of his presence so that they wouldn't be destroyed by his perfection. But even from there, he had a plan to bring his creation, his image bearers, back. And that's the story of the whole Bible here. It's how do we get back to the new Eden, the new heavens, the new earth. That's why we have the covenants, like in Genesis 12 and 17, the Abrahamic covenant. God promising Abraham he'll give him a land and that he will be their God. He's like, I will dwell among man again. The Davidic covenant. So I will rule with man. But also we have promises, like in Leviticus 26, as Israel entered the land of Egypt, was enslaved for 400 years, was delivered by God, is in the wilderness looking looking forward to being in a land with God. The expression of being with God is what? Tabernacle. Then the temple. And God said in Leviticus 26, verses 11 through 13, I will make my dwelling, I will tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. What God right here is talking about is what you may have heard as the Shekinah glory of the Lord, the glorious, heavy-weighted presence with God, with man. It started off with a tent called a tabernacle. Then it was a temple. And then now as the church, it resides now in us. As Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. That we are a temple of the Lord. Now God no longer dwells in a tent, no longer dwells in a temple. Now the Shekinah glory of the Lord now dwells within us. But yet God is saying there's something better to come. Right now we think this is the best we can have, which is partially true, but there's something better to come when God dwells with his people, as we go back to verse 3, he will dwell with them, and he will be, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. There's nothing more holding us back. No more holy of holies, no curtain, and no fallen bodies. No more death that's going to separate us to dwell in the presence face to face with God. Remember what Pastor Hayden talked about? Of the series, Joy to the World, this is the joy to come. How Moses had to be hidden by God 
and behind a rock and say, you, you, I want to show you my glory, but I got to kind of hide you, show, me, show my back to you. You can't see me, otherwise you'll die. In this reality, we get to see God face to face in glorified bodies. Nothing between us. And get to finally dwell with him and worship him the way we were designed to do. And that's not just it. It gets better. Verse 4. And he will wipe away, when we're dwelling with God, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Right there is already good enough for me. But God's like, wait, there's more. And death shall be no more. The thing that I fear, the reason why I try to keep my child alive is that I don't want my child to die. I don't have to worry about that. Death is no more. It's in the lake of fire. We see that in Revelation chapter 20. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying. I'm looking forward to that. I'm tired of crying. I'm tiring, tired of expressing loss. Loved ones who died, loved ones who have abandoned, loved ones who are suffering. No more pain. I'm only 33 years old and I'm already starting to feel it. And apparently I have a long way to go. And all that, all the former things have passed away. No more need for me to go to the chiropractor or physical therapist. No more Texas allergies that I have to suffer through, as you are seeing right now. No more allergy shots or eye drops or nasal sprays. Nothing. All of that is gone. And just having no more Texas allergies is already great enough. Thinking of the eternal glory to come is magnificent. It's so amazing that even John can't even describe it. This is all we get. But what we get, what we see, is the final and full culmination of the promises of God. The cosmic eternal plan is now fulfilled. It is now complete. And since this is certain, as Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, as we referenced earlier, because of this, we live differently. And that's our first point this morning. Live with a proper understanding of eternity. There's a couple of very famous writers who had a completely different, they lived in a way that showed that they believed completely different things. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, wrote that book while he was in prison. And he died in prison. And he wrote this fantastic book and a great and amazing allegory of the Christian journey in which I would encourage all of you, take this year to either listen to or read his book, Pilgrim's Progress, to see what does the Bible have to say about the Christian journey. I would highly recommend it, reading it every year if possible. But in his book, he writes these words. The story is of a, of a pilgrim going to the celestial city, of a Christian going to the new heavens and new earth. And one pilgrim says to another, when do you find yourself in the most wholesome and most vigorous spiritual state? That thing that we desire, that peace beyond understanding, that thing that I feel so close to God right now, instead of the days where, is even God there? Is even God real? He's like, when do you feel closest to God? The pilgrim replied, when I think of the place to which I am going. On the other hand, Mark Twain one of the most famous authors of all time, when talked about heaven, said this, quote, you can go to heaven if you want. I'd rather stay in Bermuda. The sad part is that 
us, me and you, we're too often like Mark Twain than we are John Bunyan. Why is that? I think John MacArthur explained it well when he preached through this text. He says this, quote, The Christians who run slow, the Christians who work little, the Christians who make a minimal effort at serving God to demonstrate little regard for eternal things, many of them work very hard at earthly things and very little at eternal things. Why? Because in their mind, our minds, we have designed the prize to be gained here is more worthy than the effort than the prize to be gained there. So what is the solution? I'm quoting him further. A true and vivid anticipation of heaven is the solution. It is the best perspective against sin because the more heavenly minded we are, the less likely we are to stoop to the degrading level of the world and the world is degrading. The more we set our affections on the things above, the less likely we are to follow in the fleshly impulses. And that is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, and 34, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And the things, the things that we need, shelter, food, will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Don't be anxious about 2024, because that's Tomorrow. And it's anxious for itself, sufficient for the day of its own trouble. So how then can we apply this? How can we live with a proper understanding today, the last few hours of 2023? When you leave this room, when you wake up tomorrow morning, here are four things you can do to live with a proper understanding, or how to. One, comprehend what God is bringing comprehend what God is bringing. Maybe for the first week of 2024, each day, maybe you have a different Bible reading plan. Keep doing that. But maybe read the first four verses or the first eight verses of Revelation 21, reminding yourself, this is what's coming. This is secure. This is what's true. Or maybe you get a phone call or a text message about a situation that hurts you're facing this every time we think of a hard situation, stop and read this passage and comprehend what is to come. Because whatever you're facing will end. Even if it lasts the rest of your life, guess what? It will end. And then for eternity, which is far greater than anything we experience in this life, will be what we see in verses 1 through 4. Second, focus on the task at hand. Focus on the task at hand. Knowing that whether we eat, sleep, or drink, we can do all things for the glory of God. New Year's resolutions, ask it, okay, does this glorify God? Budgets, does this glorify God? Housework, does this glorify God? Because it does, depending how you do it, and for the reasons why you do it. Next is to put off the earthly and pursue the eternal. Put off the earthly and pursue the eternal. For example, I have a two, two-year-old, soon to be three-year-old, and another little girl coming in January. The thing, the earthly thing I can pursue is focus only, keyword only, on their high education and career. Instead, what I need to pursue is eternal, to say, this little soul needs to know and follow Jesus. And then, in the way they pursue education and they pursue their career, how can this little soul do so in light of glorifying God? 
Maybe write down the different areas of your life that you're trying to change this year and go, okay, how can this be pursuing the eternal? From the discipleship of our children to just maintaining our homes. Maintaining our homes that we can host people, to disciple people in our houses. And fourthly, so comprehend, focus, put off, and put on. Number four, follow and obey Christ. Follow and obey Christ. Even when it's scary, even when it's hard, or even when you do not feel like it. Knowing that he is guiding you to his perfectly eternal kingdom, that he is trying to conform you from what's your dead self, your old self, he's shaving off that dead self and trying to put on the new, his son, Jesus Christ. So maybe with that business decision you have to make, you know the right answer. You know it would please God. But also there's opportunity to kind of skate by. No, God says, no, do the hard thing. Trust me. Maybe in your marriage, relationship with your kids or grandkids, you know, you might need to bring up a hard conversation with the gospel. God says, do it and trust me. It's Proverbs 3, 5 through 8 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your understanding. That we need to make sure we're trusting in the God's plans, even when it means we have to do something very, very difficult. These promises seem far-fetched until you know the one who made the promise. And that's verses 5 and the first half of 6. So let's go back to Revelation 21 together. Verse 5, it says, And he who was sitting on the throne, so the one who spoke beforehand was a loud voice from the throne. That was probably an angel, and a herald saying this. But now he was seated on the throne. God himself says this, Behold, so can pay attention, I and making all things new. Promise number one. He's making all things new. We wish sometimes we have a, a new schedule, renewing our house a little bit. If we just get those projects done, finally we can stop doing that. Renew our car a little bit, stop breaking down. If I can just fix this car, then I can just don't have to deal with it anymore. I want to fix our marriage. I want to fix our country. God's saying, I'm making all things new. As Paul iterates in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, says, we, And we all, with unveiled face, holding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. Even right now, God is changing you, believer, little by little, until he changes you completely in eternity. Jumping down to the, another promise. In verse, the end of verse 5, and he also said, write these down. So it's so important. The guy says, John, write these down. So it's saying, God, God's telling us, hey, reader, read this, because I had this person write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. The second promise is we can trust God's words. What he says will happen. And we've, we've seen it before. God promised Abraham to give him a land, and he gave him a land. He gave Israel a land. He promised of a, of a king. He gave him a king, David. He promised to give him a better king and a better prophet, and that's Christ. And he said, I'm not done yet. There's something else that is coming, a perfect new Eden. And the promise is actually in the second half of 
in the first half of 6, when he says, I am the Alpha and Omega, we'll, we'll get to it is done. So pin it is done. We're going to go to I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. This is nothing new to Revelation. And it, again, God revealed this to you, our friend. You guessed it, Isaiah. Three, at least three times, Isaiah writes in Isaiah 41, I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. Isaiah 44, 41 and 44, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, what, what's the big deal? Besides me, there is no God. Isaiah 48, 41, 44, 48. Listen to me. I am the he, the first and the last. So what John is trying to help us see is the connecting the points of when God says, I am the first, I am the last, I am the only God, Isaiah, in the context of him being occupied by a pagan nation with a plethora of gods, saying, God, God's saying, the, the idols that you worship, the wood and the rock, I, I created the wood and the rock. The gods that you created in your imagination, I'm the one that created you. I am the God, and so you need to listen and pay close attention. And for that fact, we can trust his word is true because he is the only God. But the greatest promise is promise number three. There's those three words in the beginning of verse six. And he said to me these three words, it is done. He, John writes this again in, or earlier in Revelation 16, but those three words need to trigger something, something else John wrote in his gospel. Three words as Jesus said on the cross before he surrendered his life. What were the three words? It is finished. And so what Jesus, what God is saying right here, like Jesus before, it is done. But this done, even when Jesus said it is done, he only meant the payment of sins is paid for. And you can trust that. And we can trust that because of God's action. How, how can we trust when God says, hey, if you confess your sins, I am faithful and just to forgive you of those sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And because you're cleansed of all unrighteousness, you can now enter the new heavens and the earth. Why can we trust those words? Because every other religion, from Roman Catholicism, according to the, the church, the Roman church, the Pope believes in their, in their canons, you need to, yes, you're saved by grace, but you've got to kind of keep the grace by keep working at it. Otherwise, you're going to lose it. So it's really up to your works. Or it's the Mormon or Jehovah Witnesses saying, yes, you need to believe in, in Jesus or the guy Jesus, but also you need to kind of add into your works. Or if it's Hinduism, saying, you know what, you need to do a lot of good so you can be reincarnated at something better. All, everything's about works. And God's saying, no, 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 no. You trust in my work because I'm the one that gets to say, it is done. And the reason why we can trust the words, if we confess our sins, repent from our sins, and trust in Christ, knowing that the eternal realities to come is our own, is because of what? The empty tomb. If you don't believe in the resurrection, Paul has strong words that says, you're not a Christian, because without the resurrection, we're going to be most pitied. Why? The wages of sin is what? Death. Death. The, the, what we owe God when we sin against him is our death. But what did Jesus do? He died in our place. And to show that we can trust that, did Jesus stay dead? No. He's like, hey, the thing that you can't beat, death, you will die 10 out of 10 times. You can't beat this thing. But I'm the one that will beat it. I'll raise up three days later. And not only that, as we see in Revelation chapter 20, I will take death by its little neck and throw it into hell. Death is no more. 
But God is saying, it is done. He's saying right here in this passage, something that we can trust, this promise, it's not just the sins are paid for. Right here in Revelation 21, the plan, the culmination from Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 3, everything we see in between, the, the rise of the covenants, the rise of Israel, the kings, the prophets, the new covenant, Jesus Christ, everything is finally concluded. The plan is done. New Eden is here. and God's people will be with him. It is good as finished. God told John to show his words can be unequivocally trusted. And so the situations that you're facing with your marriage, with your family, with your job, with your body, point number two is joyously trust God's promises. Joyously trust God's promises. Even in the midst of of unbearable, unimaginable, undescribable pain and anguish, it can still turn into a peace and joy that is beyond understanding. That happens when you know the promise is good and true. Well, for example, my parents, one of my favorite places to go as a kid was visiting my aunt and uncle and my cousins up in a mountain town in California called Bishop. And we loved going there. In the winter, it meant we get the sled. In the summer, we meant to go down tubing down the little river there. But more important, I get to hang out with my best friend at the time, my cousin. And my parents said, hey, we're going. Everything changed. I got excited because I loved going there. I loved hanging out with my cousin. I loved hanging out with my, my, my uncle. The uncle was one of those uncles, right? Usually somehow guns are involved and explosions, a little bit of danger. He's one of those fun uncles. I was excited to go. I'm like, what crazy thing are we going to do this year? But I was also, you know, getting prepared. I'm like, it's winter. I got to get my winter clothes on. If it's summer, I got to make sure I pack, pack my trunks so that I can be ready to jump in the river. But also I endured. Endured the weight. Oh, it's oh, a couple more days. Oh, a couple more hours. Or I was sitting at school looking at that clock, that minute hand. Like, come on, let me out. Three o'clock, come on. Bring me here. Bring it home. And with these promises, it should get us excited. It should get us preparing. And it should help us Endure. Ever so longer. The promise that our tears will be wiped away, death is gone, no more mourning, should help us remind us, as Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that we don't have to lose heart, even though we are inflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. So we don't lose heart. For this light and momentary affliction, even though it seems unimaginable, undescribable, unbearing, is preparing us for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Because we don't look at the things that are seen that are here on this earth because those are being burnt up. They'll be destroyed. But the things that are unseen, the things that are to come. So we need to approach each situation we face, easy or hard, with the mindset that God's word can be trusted. So if you have a car accident, or if you're falsely accused at work, maybe you, your home is beginning to fall apart, or even you lose your whole home. Maybe your spouse has left you, or your child has abandoned you, or even killed. Even in every situation we face, every single day, we can joyously trust God's promises. 
So we need to do the, here's four, four steps. One, remember God's plan of renewal. Remember God's plan of renewal. He's making all things new. He's going to make your body new. He's going to make your relationships new. And he's, you're going to have a new dwelling with him in a new world. Number two, intimately know God's word. Intimately know God's word. Because it's trustworthy and true. We got to hold on to texts when you're tempted to give up. By 10, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation has overcome you that is common to man. God is faithful. He provided a way of escape that you might be able to endure it. Thirdly, we need to trust in his plan and his power. Just, with, just like with our salvation, we can bring nothing to our salvation except the sin that put Christ on the cross. And so we have to trust God saying, you trust my work and you repent and follow me. And I'll wipe you clean. I'll give you my spirit in you and you get to have a new heaven and a new earth awaiting you. Or when you have an opportunity to get back, maybe at your wife, your boss, your husband, your neighbor, but you know what, clear, what Scripture clearly says. You say, God, I want to trust your word and I want to follow your word even though it might be uncomfortable. And finally, we need to tell others. Tell others. Let's try to make sure that 2024, we tell others every single day in 2024. In years to come, of course. Of course. We can tell others, like in our life group, to encourage them in the midst of their pain or joy to focus on the new heavens and the new earth. And to the unbeliever whose reservation, as we'll read in a second, the lake of fire, we witness to them. Because the world needs to know. If you want to see your country change, if you want to see your community change, your city change, your home change, your marriage change, it has to be by Christ and his power. So we have a new universe, a new reality. We can trust God at his word. But God gives a couple more promises for those who get to enjoy this and those who are out of this. Go to the second half of verse 6 with me. It says, To the thirsty I'll give from the spring of water of life without payment. Those words should be familiar. Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. But also John, over and over, John chapter 4. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, the, the woman at the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. So that's John chapter 4. Now this is John chapter 6. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever, me, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So you have John 4, John 6, and then John 7. John 4, 6, and 7. Jesus stood, stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of the heart will flow rivers of what? Living water. So those who are thirsty, God will give us life without payment because he's paid for it. It might be hard for us. We might get, we're getting a little taste of it here in New Braunfels. We have a couple rivers that are nice and a lake, but we're experiencing a drought. Things are lower than usual, but we still have water. This isn't like in ancient Israel where, or West Texas where there's a lack of water, right? 
You're desperate for, to find water. It's not a reality that we have here where we have filtered water or reverse osmosis in our kitchen sink. It's that here's water that needs life because some water might kill you if you don't boil it, kill the germs, bacteria. But Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you perfect water. The second person is the one who conquers. The other way to say it, the one who overcomes, the one who perseveres, will have this heritage, will have this promise of a new heavens and new earth, and I will be his God and he will be my son. The one who endures by the power of the Holy Spirit should help us remember those churches in the first three chapters of Revelation. God calls them to endure the persecution that they face. But there's another group of people who will not resign. The residents of the new heaven and new earth are those who thirst, who trust in God, and those who overcome through the power of the Holy Spirit. The next ones are the outcasts. Those who deny God will be denied. That's where the first one on the list in verse 8 is the cowardly. Those who pro profess to follow Christ but deny them by the works. When the heat gets cranked up, they run away and abandon. The cowardly, the faithless, those who refuse to repent and believe in the gospel, the detestable, the murderers, those who take life, the sexually immoral, who perverse God's holy sexuality that he gave between a man and a woman to be married. The sorcerers, the idolaters, those who worship anything but God, and all liars, they don't have beachfront property. They're in the lake itself, the lake of fire, which is the second death that we read about in chapter 20. What John is trying to do here is trying to remind us, yes, all the, these lists are a big summary that we see in not only Roman culture, uh, not only in, throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament, and not only in the culture of Revelation. We see this, this list of sins in our own culture and really also our own lives. What God's word, what John's words are trying to help us to do is what the commentator Grant Osborne said. The reader, so you and I, are told to make a choice whether to overcome and follow Christ despite the temptation, despite the persecution, or to be overcome as a coward, therefore, thereby joining the unbelievers in eternal damnation. As John writes these kind of hard-hitting words, here's a hard-hitting point for us this morning that God wants us to know. Point number three, confidently know your future eternal residence. On our honeymoon, went to this amazing, magnificent, wonderful hotel. Thanks, Mom and Dad. But even pulling up, I was a little nervous. What if they got my reservation wrong? What if they gave away the room that we reserved? What if they forgot about us and the system failed and we just flew you know, for a few hours to, to then just turn around what if, what if something doesn't happen? Will they believe me at my word? Well, they won't. But the hotel will believe their own word. The word that I received from them in an email with a confirmation number. So I'm sitting there at the desk as they're making sure I'm the right person. I am Evan, and this is my wife, Candace. These names match the reservation. Do I have their word, that precious confirmation number, to enter in a little taste of paradise? Thanks again, Mom and Dad. I sat there confidently knowing I'm going to enter a sweet room because it wasn't based on my word that I should be there. It was based on their word saying, you're allowed in. 
So God is trying to make it clear over and over who will be in and who will be out. We have to take him at his word, not our own, not what we think, not what we experience, not what other people have told us, solely, only on the word of God. We have to confidently know based on the word of God. Like Galatians 5, 6 through 24, 16 through 24. Galatians 5, 16 to 24. Walk by the Spirit. Do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Because the flesh are against the Spirit, and the, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and do the things you don't want to do. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Saying, does this, does this define your life? Is this what you spend time doing, dreaming? Spend time calendaring? Does this define, do these actions define you? The sexual immoral, impure sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And here's the warning, the hard-hitting warning. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, those who live by those things, if you looked at the calendar of your life, this is who you are. This is the, the hard word that Jesus wants you to hear. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. The promises that we talked about are not yours. Your promise is the lake of fire. Unless you become a child of God, unless you repent and are gifted the Holy Spirit, because the fruit of the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, the, the, the characteristics of God in us is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Christians will sin. We're not talking about Christian perfectionism, which is wrong. A Christian will never be perfect until they enter the presence of the Lord, period. Christians will sin, but how do they respond to their sin? Are they gifted the Holy Spirit, as it talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, that you're grieved when you sin, that you seek repentance, or if you look at the pattern in your life, you just keep it doing it over and over and over and over some more. Even though it, you hate it, you love it. If you don't want it, you don't resist it. You plan for it. John, our author of Revelation, had strong words in his letter in 1 John 1, 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, we follow God, I follow Jesus, while we walk in darkness, the fruit of the flesh, we lie. And do not practice the truth. You might say you follow God. A lot of people said they follow God. Judas heard every sermon by Jesus and said he followed God. But are we trusting on our words, our experience, our feelings, what others say about our status in heaven when it contradicts what God is trying to communicate to you in his word? Or are we going to trust his word? So how do I have assurance of your destination? Here's a three-step process. One, what are the facts of my life? What are the facts? What do I do? What do I spend time doing? What do I spend time dreaming on? What am I doing on the computer? What am I doing in my mind and my heart? What am I doing with the words in my mouth? Next, we take right down those facts. It's number two, how does the Bible describe me based on these facts? Not what I think. Not what other people told me. Just God's word. If I contradict God's word, guess what you do? You follow God's word, and you reject me. 
What I'm trying to say is how does the Bible describe you based on what God has to say? Number three, submit to the truth. That's the hardest part. Will I submit to the uncomfortable truth that God is trying to communicate to me? That he's trying to save me from the lake of fire and instead trying to bring me in into his eternal presence? What are the facts? What does the Bible say? And how do I submit? And here's the cool part. If you know how to do that for yourself, that's what you can do. You can help other people. We can still be those ambassadors of Christ. We can tell people to be reconciled to God. We can tell people that God is, is patient with you. He doesn't want to destroy you. He wants you, as 2 Peter 3, 9, he wants you to repent. He wants to give you this new heaven and new earth to dwell with you. But really, the only person you need to look in the mirror, mirror that is the only person that you need to look at who is holding you back from there is yourself. Will you submit humbly on your knees to the word of God, how it describes who you are, and then we can help other people as well. Help them see the facts of their life, based on God's word, not what we think, not based on our opinions, what God has to say, and help people find eternal life. If we put on this eternal perspective, proper eternal perspective, what's to come? We can do this, even in the face of heavy pain and suffering. Before I came out here at this church, I had the pleasure of serving in the high school ministry for eight years. And there was a friend of mine who's almost up to this point served for almost 20 years in that high school ministry. Friend of mine, dear friend, who I, who I loved and respected, who just him and his wife just loved pointing teenagers to Christ for 20 years of their life, pointing their own children to Christ. He's someone that I respected, the one who I looked up to. As you know, I want to be a man like him. Not only was he active, he took everything from his mountain biking hobby or to his children. Everything was like, hey, how can I point people to Christ? I want to have gospel tracks when I ride, when I'm at work. How can I just point people to Christ? 18 months ago, he was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. And his active 50-year-old body began to fail him and his wife, even up to that point, ensured that they were preparing to dwell with God, to live properly with the understanding of eternity, to joyously trust God's promises and confidently know their future eternal residence and try to help others to do the same. Yes, and a couple weeks ago, as my, as my friend and his wife, as he suffered and she suffered at his side, they continued to do the same thing. They, in, they ensured, they were preparing to dwell with God and helping others to understand. They, as he, his body began to fail as an of mountain biker in, the, in his bed now, full time, lived with a proper understanding of eternity, joyously trusted God's promises and confidently knew of the future residence. And now, as of December 9th, he's in the presence of God, looking forward to it being complete waiting for his resurrection body, no longer torn apart by cancer, no longer lifeless, full of life, God's life. And they lived this life in such a way that the first words of his wife publicly was that her husband has a new birthday. He started an eternity in heaven yesterday, December 9th, 2023, at 2.25 p.m. What happens when we live in light of eternity 
Some of you have personally experienced death like you've never before. Some of you know it's there, seen others go through it, but you haven't experienced it. So maybe it's a minor in the room who've recently done it, but eventually all of us will stare face, stare death in the face. But the way that we ensure that we joyously prepare to dwell with God in his perfect kingdom depends on what we say to death. Because what, what he said to death and what she gets to say to death is that, where is your sting? Because you lose death. My husband has been redeemed and now in the presence of the Lord. And death is going to take you by the neck, and God's going to take you by the neck of death and throw you into the fire. And so as this year and the years to come, church, can we be like my friends? Can we ensure that we are joyously preparing to dwell with God in his perfect kingdom, to live with the proper understanding of eternity, to joyously trust God's promises, to confidently know where our future eternal residence is and to help others to do the same so that we can stare death in the face. We can stare the election of 2024 in the face. We can look at the circumstances that we face and say, where is your sting? You lose. Because ultimately God's going to win. And we can joyously approach this year and the things to come with joy because we know what is to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for a wonderful morning to come and worship you. More importantly, Lord, thank you for this reminder that we have that as believers, we get to experience joy forever. The pain that our bodies suffer right now the broken relationships that we're in right now, the insurmountable just suffering and trials that are to come will end. So God, help us to walk out of here different, to approach our resolutions, to approach this new year, to approach this very day with a, with a reminder that you are bringing a new heaven, a new earth, and it's our job to be faithful ambassadors, to proclaim from the rooftops with loud voices to our friends and family. God wants you to repent and enjoy him forever. So help us as a church to find joy through our suffering, but also with the same comfort you've given us to comfort others also with the sweet, good news that our sins are forgiven through your son, Jesus Christ. So help us to sing a little differently right now, God, as we sing this last song. Let us fellowship a little differently. And let's approach this new year differently, Lord. All for your glory and your glory alone. We pray all this in your son's precious name. Amen.